we've built such a cool world of like stuff that you can do and such a cool community and there's so many tutorials around we want to make it be more accessible to people. That's Paula Shouston, maintainer of Home Assistant, and this is the Readmin Podcast, a podcast that takes a peek behind the curtain at some of the most impactful open source projects and the developers who make them happen. I'm B. Dougie, aka Brian Douglas. And I'm Kathy Korvac. In this episode, we speak with Alice Schoutzen, whose project Home Assistant has taken automation by storm. Originally from the Netherlands, but based in California, Paulus did not study computer science, but came to automation circuitously, fascinated not only by data, but how best to use data to optimize people's lives. Now, with many of us at home for work and play, his work has become all the more paramount, and there's a generous streak of playfulness in it too. Please join us for a conversation where we speak with Paulus about his path to programming, his early experiments with Home Assistant, and his love for open source. I'm born in 86, so I'm now 34 years old. It was the year the Pentium 60 megahertz, the first Pentium was released. And so just before that, my parents were like, oh, maybe we should get a computer. They think this was like a good investment for the youth because it was going to be the future. And so first they bought like an old XT computer. And then a bit later, they were like, no, we need to really invest in a real computer because that one they had bought secondhand. And so, yeah, they bought a Pentium 60 megahertz, which back then was like, I think four or 5,000 guilders. I mean, that's before we had the Euro. So this is in the Netherlands uh, where I was born and raised. And then on that computer, we would like, I would just always be like doing stuff on it and breaking it. So pretty much every weekend we would go back to the computer shop and they would like have to teach me how the computer works, right? So like, oh, you can actually make folders. You don't have to put everything in like the root of your file system. And I know just, I kept breaking everything all the time. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> Back then they would fix it. And I would like look over the shoulder of the repair people. And I mean, I, back then I wasn't really programming much. It was a lot of like, I mean, I was really young, right? So I just did some HTML sometimes. I mean, JavaScript wasn't really... Uh, barely a thing. Yeah, it was barely a thing. And the resources were very poor, right? It was before MDN. It was like, you couldn't like find where to start really. Ajax like wasn't even invented yet. But yeah, I, w- I would play a lot of games and stuff. And of course it was very underpowered machine, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, I mean, I guess... A couple of years after that, I got my own computer, 166 megahertz computer, an AMD, wow, I think. Beefy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, we had like a, a, we had a LAN at my house. So we had like a, a coax based LAN. So it's like the old school one where you had to like the, you had to have like coax cable between each computer and then like stoppers at the end. And those cables always got like loose. And I, I have an older brother, so we would like play games on the network a lot. Did you ever build any like mods or anything for Doom or any of the other games? I would play sometimes with like doing some graphics that like, uh, you know, get into stuff. But I wasn't really, my programming career started way later than that. Yeah, no, my programming career started more during high school. I was playing like an online browser-based game called Utopia. Um, It's like every hour, like your land that you own progresses and you can like steal from other lands or attack them and you have like your own team and i i used to write a lot of php to kind of like cheat in the game and like i built like a a data system that collects all the data and could like detect things that others couldn't see so it was easier to uh to win um 
but that's where I really I started with PHP and I like the LAMP stack, I guess it's called nowadays or whatever. The Linux, Apache, and MySQL. Yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think, I mean, nowadays I do a lot of Python and JavaScript uh, for open source, but that really, Python didn't really start until, uh, until university, where at some point I was like, I should do something else than PHP. Was that where you, where you you got like the bug to work with with hardware or like work with like the physical and software space? No, I think I think that really just got you know by accident. So that really you know um, I work on uh, on home automation and in 2012, end of 2012, I, Philips U was released and then I bought the Philips U Hub uh, and three lights. Super expensive. It's like over two hundred dollars, right, for three light bulbs. It's, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it had an API, so that's why I kind of started coding. And I think it also it didn't click until way later that I realized how much fun it is to program something and have something in the real life change. Because when you, yeah, it's it's very satisfying to see something of your work besides just having like I know a red square appear on your website or something. It's just like, yeah, I see that all the time. But that light turning on, that is very satisfying. Yeah, totally. I mean, I have, I, I was thinking about this, like that, that first hello world experience for hardware developers are, is, is turning a light off and on. So was that like your, that was your magic moment? Was that with the Philips Hue light? Yeah. You know, I created like an API to control it. Uh, or like I created a library, Python script. And then I was like, but I need to do something with this. You know, I, I built this like tool, but I need to use it. So then I wanted the lights to turn on uh, when the sun was setting. But then I realized it was turning on actually too late. When the sun is setting, it's already too late. So we need like an offset. Then I realized this, the lights were being turned on when people were not home. So I needed to do like check if people are home. So I have to add presence detection. And this, just, you know, it kept snowballing, snowballing, snowballing. And uh, now here we are, <laughs> seven and a half years later. Home Assistant is a project that Paul has created, maintains, and is now used by so many different households across the world. Interestingly, his early days of tinkering with the game Utopia set the groundwork for what he would end up doing with Home Assistant. Utopia is basically a bunch of data streams. You monitor various data streams for values or a sequence or a combination of values. That means something interesting is happening. In response to that, you want to trigger some action. This is exactly what Paulus is doing with home automation. He monitors streams of data, times of day, presence, and the like to decide when to turn the lights on and off. And that's what differentiates business information system degrees from computer science degrees. It's all about making business decisions from streams of data. And Paulus seems to agree. Utopia, it's a text-based game, so you extract a lot of you know, data. It's just all numbers that you're seeing. There's no graphics or no meaningful graphics. It's just decorative. And with home automation, it's very similar, right? Like we want to read out what's happening in your house. We want to read out the sensors. We want to read out uh, the state of your light, what you're playing, and then allow the user to create rules on top of this. And actually, this is also what I studied. So... I did not study uh, computer science. I studied business information technology. And this is kind of a hybrid study in the Netherlands at my university, the University of Twente, um, which is, it's like half business, half computer science. So it's actually more the software side of computer science. And so it doesn't go into like processors or RAM or 
uh, that low level. And then it's very much about how to build information systems to see what's going on and, you know, make decisions based on that. So that's um, it kind of, you know, it also matches in like Home Assistant and in the Utopia hacking. It's kind of like the, the red line in the stories. Yeah, I really like seeing the data and like doing stuff with it. Are you ever afraid of introducing a bug or something in the system um, that could potentially like cause somebody's home to lock them out of it or um, somebody's lights not to go on? Like, what does that what does that feel like of being in charge of this project where people are using it for like a real life situation? We, we always try to tell people like your home automation doesn't work. You shouldn't be completely locked out or you shouldn't be able to turn on the lights at all, right? I think that the computers always fail, so you should always have like redundancy. So light switches are very nice in that sense or keys. You know, we do, we, I mean, we also ship breaking changes. So these kind of things happen um, that sometimes people see things don't, you know, expect. But I think as long as people use home automation as we preach it, which is like enhancement and not replacement, of how you do stuff in life, then it shouldn't be a big impact. But we definitely do get complaints of people like, yeah, hey, I updated to the nightly build, the system didn't work, and now my family is pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, what about, how about your family? Have you, when you were tinkering around, do you use your own home to beta the software? Yes, definitely. I have, I have a funny story about that. I made this um, like fake alarm. So I made an alarm that if, the lights would be turned on in our living room while we detected that nobody was home. I knew it was an intruder, right? Because, hey, there's uh, well, how can the lights be on? It should have detected us. So then I would flash the lights red and they would remain red in the living room. But then I was, uh, me and my wife, we were at this uh, at dinner. And then at the dinner, I had shown my friend, like, look, I can control my lights from a distance. But of course, then my lights turned on without anyone being home. And so they actually became red. And my wife went home earlier than me. She opened the door and the house was red colored, it was light. And she <laughs> knew I had built this system. And so she had to like, she had to like scarily like went through every room to see. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so she thought there was an intruder home. Yeah, she thought it was an intruder. Yeah. So I had to, I disabled that one again. <laughs> That's such a great story. And it brings up an interesting point. How does automation work when there are several people involved? And what are the ways it can be fine-tuned to address all their individual needs? One of the first things I added was presence detection. And so that was already very early on. I realized like, no, you need to make sure that everybody is taken into consideration. Because a lot of home automation is... When people try to do too, too much invasive things, it's not going to fly. So for example, if you want to dim the lights when you start playing a movie in your living room, well, that might not be uh, feasible if also people are reading books at that time, right? So, and if an automation is annoying you like a couple of times, you're going to turn it off because then, you know, if, if you have to take your phone anyway, like so many times, it's not going to work. So I think a lot of these automations that... I have, for example, are very much like, oh, let's turn on this like decorative light at six in the evening and then have it turn off automatically at 12. Um, or I have one there, turn on my camera light when I start like the webcam on my computer so that like, you know, my setup is ready for streaming. 
these are the kind of things I do now. And I have my kids can play music with uh, cards so they can like scan their own cards in the living room to play songs, which they like a lot. Can you go into more detail about how you, you set this up for your kids? Because we know you have some, some young kids, but uh, there's a very unique take to what you, you build with Home Assistant. Yeah, so, you know, in Home Assistant, we can control, of course, uh, media players. And so we can control, and there's a bunch of media players out there that you can pretty much send a URL to, and they will play whatever media is on the URL. So uh, popular examples are either the Google Home or the Google Nest. It's nowadays the Mini or the... Uh, Sonos speakers, like you can just send a URL of a song and it will start playing that. And this allowed me, so we wrote like nowadays, so that's part one of the story. <laughs> part two of the story is we have, um, there's these microcontrollers from China now that uh, it's called the ESP chips. They are like Arduino compatible. So they're kind of, they, I think they started their life as an Arduino clone, but they actually have Wi-Fi included and you can buy them for like one and a half, three dollars, including shipping. I mean, shipping is two months, but after those two months, you have them. And those microcontrollers are great because they have Wi-Fi. They can actually easily interact with Home Assistant. So we have another piece of software, uh, which is also part of our Home Assistant umbrella called ESP Home. And ESP Home is a piece of open source software where you can write just a configuration file and it will generate firmware so that, that those small chips will do what you want. And so we wrote a firmware that will... Uh, allow you to scan LFC cards. So you connect an LFC scanner to this microchip. And, you know, this is audio, so it's difficult to show. I, don't, I also don't have it one here. But we made very thin scanners that are even smaller than a phone that you can just put inside your house. And then you have NFC cards, which are just, you know, they look like bank cards or uh, access badges, but then printed with, like, covers of songs. And... When one of those is scanned, it sends, hey, this card is scanned in this room to Home Assistant. And then Home Assistant, you can program, hey, when this card is scanned, play this song or play that song. And so what happens is that when my son was one year old, he was already able to control the music in our living room because he knew if I put this card over here, I hear a beep and it will start playing the song. And... So this is a project that we've launched. Uh, like we, we've had the prototypes running around, but actually last year we really like polished it up so it's very easy for everybody to use uh, this kind of system in their house. And so we have, uh, and all of this is open source, right? So we have the, the firmware is open source, the way to generate that firmware, ESP Home is open source, Home Assistant is open source, the 3D printed case, the schematics, how to like solder it yourself, everything is open source. And because we, we think it's just a really fun thing, but we don't think it's like, it's not commercial viable because of the licensing and like printing covers on cards and these kind of things. And so we just want as many people to play with it and have fun with their kids. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the projects we've been working on in the last year. Everything about Home Assistant is open source. That aspect is very important to Paulus. And it may be the exact reason why it's grown in such an organic and effective way. The way we do Home Assistant is we try to make it more user-friendly. Right? We started very technical as every open source project, like it was a command line application, text files. And we've been trying to get it more friendly, add more user interface, because we feel like we've built such a cool world of like stuff that you can do and such a cool community and there's so many tutorials around we want to make it be more accessible to people is that where the 
the Home Assistant Blue Hub came into play, where definitely it's like a plug definitely. and play. Okay. Yeah, but but because what we saw is that we spent a lot of time working on making things easier the user interface the onboarding it discovers everything it kind of guides you into doing the right thing but all of that can only happen once you have installed home assistant and without home assistant blue what you have to do is you have to buy a raspberry pi you have to buy an sd card you have to download the image you have to flash that image to the sd card with like a third-party program like the raspberry pi image flasher and then you have to plug it all in and then you can get started. And just those instructions is already like, whoa, like that's just too much for a lot of people. We know we're not accessible to everybody. We're trying really hard, but you know, just set it up for your friends and family because then when things break, they can also come to you. And so that way it can still kind of work. And we're getting to a point now, and this is where with Home Assistant Blue, where we're really thinking, no, actually we can, you know, it's, it's good enough. And it's not going to be as easy as like a Philips U Hub, an IKEA Hub, like the, the absolute basics, because we just do too much. Um, but I think for people that use those hubs, run into its limitations and feel that they want to automate more in their house or they cannot connect up everything, then it will be easy for them to get started with Home Assistant. Yeah, and um, are you looking to expand the user base or the the model user, because you mentioned DIY enthusiast, uh, are you looking to eventually say, hey, if uh, middle school kids, you know, elementary school kids want to try Home Assistant, is there a goal to kind of expand the range of who can leverage? Yeah, so we definitely. Uh, I mean, for when you talk about like kids, there there are kids that are actually playing with uh, Home Assistant, and I think. We get to a level where it's possible, right? I think Raspberry Pi is very accessible and you know, you don't even have to install it on a Raspberry Pi. You could even just run it on your computer. Um, and I think that, you know, we I think the kind of the goal is that people like my parents who are not super tech savvy would be able to set it up. I don't think that the goal is not for them to use the full system, right? It's just like but I want them to be able to get, you know turn on the lights, create simple automations, uh, these kind of things. And so actually when you look at the features we introduced like one well, last year is that we realized our automation engine is too complicated. So we introduced what we call blueprints, which is kind of like a recipe. So instead of having to write your full automation, you just say the motion sensor in this light and, and this light in this room, connect them together with this recipe, and then the recipe will make sure the light is being turned on when you move in that room. Hearing about this project makes me realize the playfulness in it all. But there's also another aspect, privacy. Privacy is in the subheading on the Home Assistant's repo. Home Assistant's recommendation is don't put your IoT data in the cloud because you're putting too much trust in those companies. Instead, users should run their network locally. You can run your Home Assistant network on your private network. This means your devices, your Nest, light bulbs, etc., are on your local network and not in the cloud. Seven and a half years ago, I, I, I didn't care that much. The privacy was not really a focus. It kind of grew into the project organically because it was open source. So people had to run it locally. I, there was no cloud. I was not making a cloud service for people to run home automation. I, instead, I was running making a home automation engine that had all the data locally. And so whenever people would link up cloud-connected uh, devices and where the data came from the cloud, like a uh, 
Ecobee thermostat, for example, then actually we pull in that information from the cloud and it's processed locally and your automation is run locally. And then maybe if the resulting control of a device also has to go through the cloud, we will go back to the cloud. And yeah, that's how the system worked because in the end, it just ran everybody at home. There was no third party involved to do the automation engine. And as I think like five years into the project, so like two and a half years ago, that was like at that time, Google and Amazon had both released their assistants and they were like, instead of integrating with the existing APIs in the home automation space, they decided to kind of bulldoze over it, create their own APIs and tell people, you want to integrate with our stuff? Talk our API and only talk through the cloud. And then I realized there's just not a good alternative for users to actually have local home automation. Like you're being really, these tech giants are pushing uh, us to go through the cloud and we shouldn't want that. And that's really where we kind of cemented our tagline in stone. Like, no, we want to be local control and privacy is a focus point and it will not, we're not going to transition any work from Home Assistant into the cloud unless we need to. So for example, we integrate with Google and Amazon and Google and Amazon do not work with a decentralized system as we are. So we had to create kind of like a generic mailbox where Google will say, hey, I have a message for this Home Assistant instance. And then we have to route it through the right Home Assistant instance, but all the processing of that message and like it interacts with it is happening all locally. There's no, the, the cloud is really, if we have to integrate with such systems, it's only like a relaying the message. It's not actually doing anything. And this has actually been great because it also means if people want to set up their own systems, they can that integrate with Google instead of going through our central cloud relayer, they can set it up themselves because all the processing is happening locally. Um, and I think that that way users can always know what's going on and people can also write for example, plugins on top to get even more insight of like, for example, what data is being sent to Google if they want that, right? It's an optional feature that some people want. Um, but of course, you can also say, no, I want Home Assistant to run completely offline. Then like, that's also possible. And I, I think that sounds like um, with the open source and the DIY movement, um, what I'm intrigued about Home Assistant and hearing you talk about this is the fact that you can own your own network and own your own devices to be able to have them on the network. So do you find that a lot of folks, they are drawn to Home Assistant for that same reason, being able to own their own data and how their devices interact on the network? Yeah, de definitely. We, we get like, we have a subset of people that want to have like isolated networks and really know all the piece of data that's going on and at a DNS level block a lot of data going out when they see like devices pinging. Um, but what I also realized is that a lot of, these people will end up with issues because these devices don't always work well with like having network isolation. So for example, um, the Google Nest Hub is like a, you know, it's a, a Google Home, but with a screen. And, you know, a lot of people had this isolated, so it couldn't talk to other things on the network, which is great because normally it didn't have to. But then uh, Home Assistant, we created Home Assistant Cast, so we could actually put our user interface on the Google Nest Hub. But it meant that the Google Nest Hub now had to talk directly to Home Assistant and that would not work in those cases. So you keep, as you grow features, it, it, it always really, yeah, you, you run into issues really fast and then we get those issues in our GitHub repository of like, yeah, I have like all these different VLANs and they're all connected some one way or the other. 
and now it doesn't work. Help me. <laughs> yeah, that's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's annoying because those people take the most time because of like, you know, they, they, they just take up so much because they are like, I've already tried this. And then the moment you see like somebody trying all these advanced stuff, you're just like, okay, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That kind of person. Yeah. Is there anything that you personally obsess over automating in your own home? Um, no, not, not really. I think it's just a lot of, you know, I, 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 I kind of like fun stuff. So things that are just, you know, fun, unexpected. So for example, I had this, uh, I have a old phone with like a, a cord, like a landline uh, phone that you can plug into a cord. And I had automated it uh, the other day that when you pick up, it will automatically I had connected to like a VoIP box, voice over IP, and then it would call like a voice over IP server on my computer, and my computer would pick up and start playing like an audio track. <laughs> and so I had like extracted an audio track from one of uh, a phone call from one of my son's favorite series. So he would pick up the phone and he would like hear like his favorite characters on the phone talking. And, you know, it's. And he was like all obsessed with that. Like the whole day he's just listening to the phone and he's listening to the phone and. I know that kind of stuff is just really cool to see just how much fun they have with that. And yeah, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I'm, when, you know, when in my spare time, that's the kind of stuff I tend to tinker with. Paulus has been really creative with Home Assistant and the open source community has stepped in to make the product better and better. With something as intimate as home automation, I wondered what the Home Assistant community is like. So we have always had like a, a really great community. Um, I think... Partly that started because back in the days, home automation was really something for homeowners, right? Like you already had to be kind of established in life, probably had a family, bought your house, and now you're spending some time in improving the house and you end up like with home automation. And that actually meant we had a pretty mature audience, right? I, was, I always felt like I was one of the younger people, right? I, I mean, I still don't own my own home. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's it, you are, you, the stuff you can do in your house is a lot reduced when you cannot like open the walls and like rewire some electricity or lights or stuff. Um, but yeah, from the get go, people were really helpful, always helping each other and like, oh, figure this out, figure that out. Because there's also not a lot of things that are always obvious because this, everybody has different stuff in their house. Everybody has like, and nowadays it's way more uniform because people are like, okay, I'm just going to buy everything from Amazon or something like this. Um, but, you know, we work way better if you just have from something from anything, like have a speaker here from this brand, have a light bulb from this brand. Um, and yeah, this, the community kind of evolved around that. And so like a lot of people started making videos, a lot of people are writing blog posts. Um, we're doing like community highlights now. Uh, every week where we highlight like cool stuff that the people are doing. And I think the, because the, the, the biggest problem with home automation is that everything is possible once you have a, a device built in. So then what are you going to do? Right? So all of a sudden, I think there's a lot of people that they sometimes lack the imagination of what they would do. But if they, hey, if somebody says, oh, you could actually have like the lights turned on at sunset, they're like, Boom, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. And so having these kind of tutorials and kind of ideas kind of circulating has really helped our community to just get the most out of home automation and most out of home assistant. And 
Yeah, I think that's... I mean, right now, we're, the community is getting too big, right? Like I said, we have different levels of people. Some people, they don't want to have any UI. They want to do everything automated. So they want to uh, they enter a room, the lights you turn on, right? They leave the room, the lights you turn off. There's people that really love making dashboards. So they just want to see all the data that they can possibly see, including like, you know, is the International Space Center flying over? Or when is the next rocket launch? Or... Are there earthquakes in the area? Like a bunch of stuff they all want to see on their dashboard. And then there's just people that are kind of like tinkering with like the ESPs and they just use home system because it's the best way to control or get insight in them. And then there's people that are system administrators. They just really, you know, they want to have their home network be like an enterprise lab with like all the fancy stuff. They always break everything. And... Um, but yeah, it goes all over the place. And I think that is just the the fun of it, right? And I think, oh, at our conference uh, in December, there was somebody talking how he was uh, in Bolivia. He had a brick factory, like making actual physical bricks to build homes. And he was using Home Assistant for that. And he was also using uh, DeepStack. So DeepStack is uh, AI that is uh, open source AI that is developed in Nigeria. And so then he was like, you know, this is very cool because he was like using technology from Nigeria, he was using Home Assistant and then all in Bolivia to help his brick factory, you know, be better at like make more bricks. Um, But yeah, it it really goes all over. There's people living in RVs with Home Assistant. There's people using it in boats and museums and schools. And yeah. Do you have another job outside of Home Assistant and contributing to the project? No, not anymore. No, so uh, two and a half years ago, um, yeah, two and a half years ago, uh, when I got my green card. So before I got my green card, I couldn't do anything because I was on a V. I'm a. I'm from the Netherlands and I live in the U.S. and so I could only like work for my employer uh, or earn money for my employer. So two and a half years ago, I started a company called Nabucasa, and so Home Assistant is all local and Home Assistant is about local control, but. Sometimes you want to be able to control your home while you're away from home. So you want to have uh, remote control. Uh, And there's also uh, companies that do not work with decentralized, like a Google or an Amazon. And so all these things you can set up yourself, but you need kind of technical skills for it. And so what my company does is like, we call it Home Assistant Cloud, which is kind of like, you know, the funny because the name is kind of the antithesis of what I just preached. But it's, (laughs) the idea is that you you pay a monthly subscription and then we take care of all that stuff for you. So you have end-to-end encrypted remote control. You have uh, Google and Amazon access. You have access to a uh, text-to-speech API that you can use for free. So a lot of people like to have customized alarms in their home. Uh, maybe they do like somebody's at the door or they have face detection and they know who's at the door or they just want to like yell at their kids. <laughs> and that stuff is all like using the text-to-speech API. Um yeah, so that's uh, that's that's what we uh, that's how we sustain ourselves. So um, yeah, we have people working on it uh, across the world. We're distributed now, and then for example, we just uh, acquired like another open source project from a maintainer that he was kind of lingering. Uh, like he was, he had too many commitments in his real uh, real life. I'm saying in his like <laughs> in his daily life that he couldn't really contribute to open source. So that project was kind of stalling and it was 
related to our ESP chips that I was talking about. So we, at, with Nabucasa, we actually just acquired this to make sure that it stays open source and like that we can put more resources at it. Um, so yeah, we're just, uh, we're sustainable. We're like, there's no VC funding involved. There's no loans or these kind of things, right? We're really funded by the users and the users fund us because we build cool and fun open source stuff. So it's really like this iterative loop where we just, you know, we're just doing cool stuff all the time. And uh, I mean, it's working out really well. And I think it's, it's not expensive. It's like $5 a month. But if you put it worldwide, there will be enough people that uh, will chip in. So that's been uh, been great. I'd love to know, now that folks have got accustomed to being at home, uh, did you see an uptick in the community uh, of folks who wanted to automate this different parts? Yeah, no, we definitely see an uptick. I think we, you know, I talked to a lot of people that are using it to turn on lights to kind of signal to their kids when it's time for like homeschooling, when they get like to go online. So they will have like a light turn green or red uh, to kind of send indication. Uh, but we all, I mean, we also see so many contributions. It's been really insane. It kind of, you know, Hacktoberfest is usually a really insane month for us. Like we get a lot of contributions, like and real contributions, right? Like, you know, I think the pandemic really, like people started staying home March, around March and Man, it's just been so busy. There's just like, it's it's funny because we have contributors from all ranks of life or all walks of life, right? So we also have these uh, people that are programmers, but they have been growing in the ranks and they're like now managers and they used to be like flying around doing stuff and now they're not allowed to fly around. So they're just programming, <laughs> contributing a lot or yeah, people are at home and they're just bored. I mean... You cannot go anywhere anyway, right? So yeah, program, program, program. And I think, well, we, I think like last month we had like 800 open PRs across the organization. And we just, you know, we keep pounding at it, like reviewing, reviewing. But every time we review, people get excited because their stuff got reviewed. So they want to contribute more. <laughs> and so it just keeps going, I think. So last year, GitHub, right? GitHub uh, publishes the state of the Octoverse, the yearly stats. And so last year we were the second most active uh, Python project in the world on GitHub, well, like on GitHub, but, uh, and with like 8,000 people involved in like, and this is just the core. So it's, yeah, we see a lot and I hope, I really hope we can really like go outside soon and just like, <laughs> don't have to be here all the time uh, and i think that uh, hopefully also the contributions will go a bit lower but i fear not because you know we have also grown so there's just more people interested in it yeah that's great to hear no it, it is good it's like it's it's success of course but with success comes you know pressure right like it's yeah paulus thanks so much for chatting with us telling us about home assistant uh, I'm super excited to hear about your success uh, during the pandemic and see the growth of just the ecosystem of home automation. Um, so thanks for just powering through and setting the trend. And uh, yeah, many more stars <laughs> will be aligned uh, on your repo in the future. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Paulus. It was amazing meeting you and getting to chat about home automation. I love it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. It was so good to speak with Paulus Shouston and have him on the Readme podcast. To learn more about Paulus and his project, Home Assistant, please visit home-assistant.io. I'm Brian Douglas, and I'm a developer advocate here at GitHub. 
And I'm Kathy Korvec. I work in product at GitHub. The README podcast is a GitHub podcast that dives into the challenges our guests face and how they overcame those hurdles. In sharing these stories, we hope to provide a spotlight on what you don't always see in the lines of code and what it took to build the technology that inspires us all. It's been really great spending time with you. The README podcast is part of the README project at GitHub, a space that amplifies the voices of the developer community, the maintainers, the leaders, and the teams whose contributions move the world forward every day. Visit github.com slash readme to learn more. Our theme music has been produced on GitHub by Dan Gorelick with Tidal Cycles, additional music from Ray Royale, and Blue Dot Sessions. The Readme podcast is produced by Sound Made Public for GitHub. Please subscribe, share, and follow GitHub on Twitter for updates on the podcast and all things GitHub. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.